AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for September 23rd, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. And today we have some special guests with us, Dan Rubin, Dan Newman, and Murray. And Dan, can you tell us a little bit about Murray here? Yeah, well, Murray is a, a character that we use in our internal security awareness program. We've been running our new program for about a year or so and had some pretty good success. I think we're going to talk a little bit about it later on. Great. We're looking forward to it. Uh, we have joining us online, Jim Clausing. And Jim, how are things in Ohio? Getting a little chilly today, actually. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, fall color should be coming out pretty soon here. And uh, and <laughs> and here we have uh, John Hogum. How are things going with you, John? Pretty good. You know, helping good. with some customer events and things right. of that nature. It's never a dull moment. All right, good. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's get right into it here. Jim, you have the first item here. We're going to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, uh, some web server attacks and some characteristics associated with that, huh? Yeah, this was uh, an article that uh, Dan Sid uh, did over on the um, security.net blog. He, We've talked in the past about some compromised web servers being used in uh, distributed denial of service attacks. And this particular uh, attack he observed and wrote about was what they call a layer 7 DDoS. In this case, basically, it was just a bunch of machines that were sending HTTP GET requests and overloading the web server that was being uh, attacked. But uh, unlike the the majority of attacks against web servers, it wasn't a whole bunch of compromised desktops. This this was another case of compromised web servers, like like we've seen a couple of times. Um, but uh, he decided to take a look at the the machines that were doing the attacking, and um, they were web servers. As I said, they're both Windows and Linux boxes running uh, Apache, IIS, Lite HTTPD, Nginx. The surprising part to me, especially, was the the largest single group of machines doing the attacking were um, Apache running on Windows, but all all of the attackers appeared to be running outdated versions of either Apache, IIS, or PHP MyAdmin or or something like that. It was a you know a lot of outdated software used to compromise them, but then this bunch of web servers from all over the place. Again, we've talked in the past, one of the advantages, if you can manage to, as a bot herder, if you can manage to compromise a web server is you normally have you know, decent bandwidth, big pipes going out. And uh, so that's what was going on here. But, you know, the I, I was surprised at the uh, number that were, Apache on Windows um, with various old outdated versions of PHP or other software on there. So it was just an interesting look at the this particular attack. The fact that they were doing what these guys call the Layer 7 attacks, the 
rather than you know UDP spoofing type attacks. Um, you know, means that they were completing the three-way handshake, so they had to, you know, have some decent bandwidth. Or at least they were trying to. <laughs> at least they were trying to. Dan, you had something. Yeah, Jim, why was it such a surprise that they were running, uh, that it was Apache machines on Windows? Or what would you have expected otherwise? Well, I, I, I would have expected uh, Apache to be Linux. I, that's maybe just my own bias. I When I hear Apache, I think Linux. But um, a lot of these were running Windows. On Windows, I expect the web server to be IIS. You know, that's just probably my own personal bias there. But Yeah, same here, Jim. I, I would have thought the same thing. I, I always sort of assumed that. But, uh, as you know, it would be interesting to uh, see what the demographic is, you know, outside of the attacking, if that was really a contribution to the uh, the attack space or not. I don't know, John, you had some uh, experience with the robot attacks, which were sort of the notorious or historical uh, entree into the web source attack activity. Did, did you happen to have any observations around that? Well, I mean, sure. It, there were a lot of servers mm -hmm. in spaces where they had uh, an extreme amount of bandwidth. Right, right. Uh, and usually those servers were um, hosting multiple websites, so mm -hmm. they were very high-powered machines. They had a lot of bandwidth, a lot of mm -hmm. power. So if someone could compromise the web server and put some kind of right. uh, like backdoor web shell on there, which was the typical modus operandi, and then use that to trigger attacks, um, yeah. they could really do a lot of damage with a insignificant number of machines. You know, mm -hmm. less than a couple of thousand would really saturate, you know, a potential right. target. And it wouldn't really matter what the operating system underneath was, right? I mean, that that's, that'd be transparent. Yeah, the, not really. Uh, Most of the time they were mostly, uh, like, uh, they were really applications even within the web server themselves, right? Yeah, uh, on, in that particular uh, mm -hmm. uh, situation, it was a lot of those content management systems and mm -hmm. some of these other open source packages that you put on top of your web server to do some kind of content management that had vulnerabilities that were exploited and allows them to drop a file on there that they can then use to do other things. Yep. The one thing I was going to say about Apache on Windows, and this is a little tangential, tangen tangential <laughs> to this topic of DDoS, but I know that there are a lot of threat actors out there, uh, particularly in the APT space. Mm -hmm. I see this all the time. Once they get a machine uh, that's internet facing, uh, could be doing something else for some small business or whatever. Mm -hmm. They will bring down a bundle that's got Apache in it for mm -hmm. Windows, and then they'll run. You know, they'll use that as part of their backdoor infrastructure uh, right. to maintain. You know, uh, their backdoor or their back office infrastructure for part of their malicious activity that they do. Right. I don't think it's related to this, but it's very common to see big bundles of Apache already like pre-packaged up, mm -hmm. so you can just dump them, unzip them, and run them. Uh, on Windows machines, so you don't even have to install it, really. Okay, very cool. It, you know, Jim, you I think you stumbled on another topic that I wanted to address briefly here. You mentioned the, uh, the you know, Layer 7 DDoS attack, and then also mentioned that it was really just HTTP gets, and I think, uh, John, you've seen this thing yeah. as well. There are really kind of two, two types of Layer 7 attack. There is, certainly is the case where, as we saw here, basically an HTTP GET where they're flooding uh, traffic, but there is also the possibility of you know some sort of an exploit against the web server that could just simply take it down, and it may even take just a few packets or, or a much smaller number. 
But I think that's significant because oftentimes you get in these discussions about what is a layer seven attack and some people are thinking really complex and others are just thinking, you know, just do too much of the normal thing. Yeah, and there's a couple of variations immediately that come to mind. Um, so we've seen where instead of just doing HTTP GET, they'll do a, uh, some sort of GET that uh, hits against the search algorithm within right. the back. So it tries to do some actual computational load on the backend web server uh, by hitting some kind of script that's going to make it do a lot of backend work. Beat up on the database. Uh, or fetch a really large file. So if mm -hmm. like a website has a big PDF that has all their marketing materials in it, you'll see a smart attacker might do something like that where they mm -hmm. just tell it to keep fetching that over and over again uh, and using up a lot of bandwidth. And if it's HTTPS, it's really hard to mitigate that kind of stuff because you can't peek into the packets very easily to yeah, see what's going on. Deal with right. that, that kind of situation. So it's a matter of making sure that you're uh, that you know who you're talking to once you get into the uh, actually supporting queries and an HTTPS scenario. You know, it, it's kind of interesting because that brings up sort of the trade-off about reliability or integrity versus confidentiality. That is, the tendency is to think you encrypt stuff that's a good thing. It's not always the best thing in cases like this. Right. right. Yeah. So we got a little. There bit are off methods <laughs> to, to work around that. You have, yeah, you know, absolutely. SSL accelerators and load balancers that can kind of do some of that. Yeah. Help with that mitigation um, once they, you know, decrypt what's going on there. All right. Well, thank you for that, Jim. Uh, let's go ahead over to John here, and we'll talk a little bit about the uh, internet advertising world. And I think you're probably going to have to explain a little bit of this to yeah, me. Yeah, and I, I think uh, that's probably the best place to start uh, is to kind of discuss what malvertising is, because we've talked about it on previous shows. Mm -hmm. um, but if you haven't seen the previous shows, maybe it's a good thing to just kind of uh, refresh everybody's memory. So malvertising is uh, a term that literally means malicious advertising. A lot of legitimate websites, uh, large ones, you'll notice that they have banner ads or advertisements injected inside of the web page that you're visiting. They're basically pulling in advertisements from a third-party advertising network. So they don't really know what ads they're going to be showing to you when you visit their web page, but they'll talk to this advertising network who will supply them with advertisements, and then they are putting that content on their web page for you to see so to speak. Yeah, I think, you know, even sometimes I think there's a broker in between there, that they're basically a buyer of advertising and a seller of advertising. Right, there, there and probably is. They're, they're basically, so. Yeah, I was kind of simplifying <laughs> the, the simplifying it down. Well, leave it bit. to me to make it more complex right. than it needs to be. Go ahead, John. But in any event, um, on the right-hand side, you see an attacker Looks on certain very occasions. very devious, by the way. Yes, very I, I leverage some of your uh, Murray artwork here. Well, that's not Murray. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's our, our bad guy. And he can insert an advertisement. If he's clever enough to, on the back end, third-party network, they're not maybe as scrutinized. Some, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they make mistakes here or there. They allow somebody to um, uh, post an ad or pay for an ad, maybe using a stolen credit card or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then that advertisement gets into this list of advertisements that might be displayed on a lot of big websites. Uh, and when that happens, that advertisement can uh, uh, you know, make it so that a pop-up will occur or it'll redirect the user to uh, another page that can lead them to get malware installed on their machine. Mm -hmm. So if you get, as a bad guy, if you can inject your advertisements into a third-party advertisement network that's used by a lot of large websites, you have a better chance of getting more victims. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the basic gist of how that works. So uh, this particular story is about a campaign that kind of came out, I want to say, probably three, four weeks ago. We didn't get a chance to talk about it. It's another 
malvertising campaign. It's not malvertising is not a new concept. This one just happens to be very successful, so it's probably worth letting people know about. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the Kyle and Stan malvertising campaign. It's named Kyle and Stan for the naming scheme and the malicious domains that they use. Mm. Uh, so it usually starts with like stan.something or kyle.something. And I think it's uh, homage to um, South uh, Park. South Park, yes, yeah. thank you. In any event. Down with Cartman. So uh, uh, they, uh, um, they, they set up this infrastructure. They're injecting ads into these ad networks. And uh, in the initial report that came out from Cisco, uh, it was about 700 malicious domains. Uh, since then, you know, recent news, they've uncovered about nine times as many. So about wow. 6,500 malicious domain names associated with this activity. And they've infiltrated a lot of large websites. When I say infiltrate, they've been able to inject their malicious ad into these ad networks mm -hmm. that are being used by some big websites like Amazon, YouTube, um, the ads.yahoo.com. So if you visit those websites, there's a chance that when you're browsing there, you'll get one of these ads. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's some percentage of traffic might get that ad. It's not every time you go there. And uh, the other interesting thing about this one is uh, for each time somebody visits it, it uh, basic gist is you, uh, you see the, the web page or you see the malicious advertisement redirects you to another place. First thing it does is check, are you a Windows or are you a Mac by looking at your user agent? Mm. And it will deliver appropriate malware right. for you know, which is not common. We don't normally see mm -hmm. cross-platform malware. They have versions for both Mac and Windows, and they basically dump, dump a lot of spyware and adware on your machine as the basic gist of, I think, how they're monetizing this, um, mm -hmm. this activity. I don't know that there's really much else going beyond that. Uh, but in that dropper, those um, every time it's creating a new piece of malware with a new MD5 sum. So... Um, for people who aren't familiar with that, that makes it a lot more different for antivirus companies. It's not the same right. piece of malware getting dropped every time. Every single time, it's a different piece. So they're re yeah, it's rebuilding. It's, yeah, it's rebuilding yeah, itself like every time for each person. So it looks mm -hmm. different. Um, so that's you know interesting. And uh, it's not using drive-by exploits. They're using social social engineering. So it'll pop up something like your machine's running really slow or you're infected. You need to click you know click here to install the you know speed PC program. Mm. Uh, and they're using kind of that Trojan horse kind of thing to say, hey, we're going to give you some, you know, piece of software to help your machine you know, run faster or do something. Right. You. Okay. Yeah. And uh, in reality, it's not doing that. It's just installing lots of spyware and adware type mm. stuff. Um, so one to keep an eye out for. Some people probably aren't familiar with the fact that, you know, browsing to legitimate large websites could get you potentially infected, especially mm -hmm. if you click on the ads. Some of those ads you don't even need to click on, just viewing it. Mm -hmm. will automatically pop up a new window and redirect you to another web page that is trying to coerce you into getting infected. So, so not that we necessarily aware. endorse the behavior, but is that kind of an argument for using ad blocking software? Uh, that on is your one mitigation way, sure. Um, so I, I'm not adverse to using advertising blocking software. Uh, also, disabling JavaScript is another option, although that makes a lot of things break on the internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that is another way to mitigate that behavior. Um, one of the things I like to do is use sandboxing technologies. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of these sandboxing technologies for your browser that help 
protect it from you know getting malware installed on it. So, All right, so that's this another basically uh, a shell that runs around, or your browser runs inside sort of a shell, so it protects it, uh, the rest of the computer, presumably, right. uh, from it, or at least if there's less opportunity to break out of that uh, right. Out of that shell. So then, what kind of advice do you give to users about something like that? Because this is ordinary web serving. You'd be going to a major vendor, major search engine, anything, and this could pop up if you hit that unlucky lottery, and they, the vendors don't catch it in time. So what do you say to somebody who's just wants to use their computer and browse the web as they would normally, and what's the uh, the solution to something like this? You've got to use some of these protection measures that John just right. went through. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Make sure your antivirus is up to date. It might not be able to pick up the thing, but most of the antivirus tools come up with uh, website rating uh, capabilities as well now, so that they can uh, they'll they'll give you a rating if when you do search engine to be able to see which ones have been checked out to be okay. That doesn't necessarily protect you from the you know, the occasional advertising bit that'll come through. This is just a part of that. You know, it's like going out in the city at night by yourself. Yeah. Just be careful. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed some of the pop-ups are happening where you click the X thinking you're closing it and it's popping up another one. Or right. now there's nothing on a pop-up. There's no close, nothing. You just have to wait. Right. And then a close appears. And hopefully when you yeah, close well, it, it closes. Yeah, there's a, what I would describe as uh, compulsory advertising. Okay. And, uh, you know, I guess it, it, it really comes down to you get what you pay for. If you're going to sites that are facilitated through free services, it's got to get paid somehow. And I was actually kind of curious whether these uh, malvertisers are actually paying for the clicks they're getting. I'm presuming that they, uh, they're kind of, you know, stop and leave kind oh, of uh, scenario. Right. Somehow, right. somehow it has to get paid for. But right. And in any case, yeah, this is definitely one of those hazards that uh, there isn't exactly what I would describe as a, a good solution right now. And uh, it's a little bit of luck of the draw. And, and I think the motivation is actually on the organizations that are using websites that have advertising, they're hosting advertising, and those brokers, the brokers, their, their reputation is going to be dependent on having quality advertising to, uh, to post seems like there's an element of user education as well because if these things that people are clicking on are these kind of do this right away your computer's in danger you're you're in so much trouble and trying to get somebody to fall for something by scaring them mm -hmm. people can learn to understand and think about what the the message that the ad is trying to give them they might think twice before clicking mm -hmm. okay. absolutely. absolutely and i think that's one of the things that murray would probably want to pay attention to and so I think that takes us over to you, Dan and Diane, about uh, Murray here. What, what can you tell us? So Murray is part of our AT&T security awareness campaign that we've been conducting for the, the past year or so. Uh, we're trying to find new ways to reach a group of 300,000 people scattered all over the world who are kind of used to interacting with media and learning about things in a different kind of way than has been done conventionally in the past. We're mm -hmm. using a lot of video, we're using a lot of interactive web experiences, sweepstakes, internal communications, all ways to get out this message in a way that people maybe aren't used to. And uh, as you can see, Murray's pretty popular. We've put him on pretty much everything that we can. And I think Diane could talk about a lot of what we're seeing right yes. here. Well, we wanted it to be motivational, and um, so we put Murray on a T-shirt. We have uh, microfiber cloths that we made with Murray and his message, and I personally made the stuffed Murray. And um, the reason I did that was because I just wanted to see if I could. Mm -hmm. And um, Murray, as you know, is very lovable, and I thought making him huggable as well would work. And I made the prototype, 
and gave it to my manager. And he's sitting in her office as we speak. My manager said, you know, why don't you make a few more? So I made him, I made four total, and, and counting the prototype, that's five. And I gave him two different expressions that you would see on the graphics or the, the uh, videos. And so he has a badge now, and he has bobble brows. So, Diane, we were talking a little bit earlier about bringing back the little baby, you know, the beanie toys. Right. And uh, so we're going to need thousands of them. Are you ready for that? Uh, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> He's in very, very high demand. Uh, a lot of people really like Murray. Um, another thing that we use him for, so we've got on our, our shirts here and, and on the cloths, um, the message, you are the firewall. One right. of the things that we try to emphasize, and we were just talking about it before with the web advertising, is that people need to be able to do their part and to be mm -hmm. able to recognize when there's a threat, no matter how many Brian's or Jim's or John's there are in the world, there's always going to be something that gets through to the normal user. And we're trying our best to make sure that people take a second and think. Think about, I am the firewall. I'm the person who's almost as responsible for security as some of you guys. And by doing small things, I can have a really big impact. Um, and we've found that it's resonated pretty well. People like to know that they're part of something bigger than themselves and that by doing small things that they can have big impacts. You lost me just past that point where we aren't normal. But... <laughs> no, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you guys are super normal. You're you're very you're different uh, security wise compared to the uh, the normal person out there. Great. And also otherwise abnormal. But we could talk about that at a different time. Um, but we brought one of our videos. It's from one of the newer campaigns that we're going to be running. So I I think if we run that, we can talk a little bit more afterwards. Okay, we can do that. I guess the first thing, you know, I, I've had some experiences on online. I happen to be a Facebook user and a LinkedIn user. Do you have any and, friends named Red Schultz? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> so you got to watch out and, for them. And that's the tricky part. They, they, some of these fraudulent personas actually come on as people that you know and recognize, and they'll steal their pictures and mm -hmm. post those pictures. And, and the one thing that is kind of a clue is, you, well, first of all, you might already be a friend with somebody. And uh, they start, they show up again asking to be your friend and they don't have any other mutual friends or maybe only a handful. So that's, I think, one of the big uh, 
clues that you want to look for in cases like this. And I think it's a very good segment. The uh, you know be, it's a it's a piece of awareness that I think is uh, relatively under the covers right now, and I think it's a, a, an issue that's still on the you know sort of building. Yeah, and, would, I remember we did that story on Threat Track probably six months ago, a year ago, about the uh, the Russian woman who would befriend diplomats and other business people and right. get into a intimate relationships with them and steal their information. Online. You never know. <laughs> Online intimate, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's the same one, but there was somebody who, as a pen test, they used a woman's right. identity to infiltrate a large defense contractor. So sense. using LinkedIn, they were able to kind of friend people that were uh, you know in there and then once those people saw that oh she's linked in with people i know I, right. she must work here or something and they all linked in until she had a huge network mm -hmm. even though it's a fake person <laughs> wow. and they were able to use that as a way to you know uh basically gain intelligence and a bunch of other things we covered that in, mm -hmm. uh, in a show as well right yeah. and we're using so this video is the the first in a, a new campaign that we're running and we we've done we kind of cycle our message to keep it fresh with with people in the company we did a few months of careful what you click to make sure that people know about clicking on bad emails and to mm -hmm. think before they click on links like we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. we did careful what you keep which uh, is more of an internal kind of bookkeeping thing about the dangers of holding on to all old documents and following company policies when you get rid of uh, when you have something you don't need anymore and now we're doing careful what you share, which is all about making sure the information that you have doesn't get to the outside. Mm -hmm. And this one in particular, like you said, you never know who's on the other end of your message. So make sure you know that what you're putting out to the world can get somewhere where you don't necessarily want it to be. Mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah. And even even folks, uh, you know, at home, the, the one thing that I've always been nervous about and always you know told my parents to keep you know to cut it back on is posting like when you're going out of town to you know thieves could then see that you've posted on social media you're going on vacation then opens your house up for to be robbed and that kind of stuff we hear stories about that right it's uh, it's uh, it's very easily to inadvertently disconnect the sort of the online activities and what that might mean in the physical world. So uh, certainly you want to be paying attention to what you disclose about your physical location and what that might mean to uh, your home when you're away. Absolutely. To the Reginalds of the world who are looking yeah, at Reginalds. Waiting for you to go on vacation. <laughs> and I feel like I should emphasize that the, the name Reginald does not have any negative connotation. It was something that we made up that we thought the hacker would be posing as, but we put it in the video and now everyone calls him Reginald. So <laughs> no offense to anyone named Reginald. Unlike Murray, however. Right. Yes. Well, Murray is great. He uh, He's made his mistakes in his past and He's kind of learned from it, kind of like the, the people who work for AT&T have come along with the program. They've learned what they should be and shouldn't be doing, and um, Murray's in a pretty good place right now. Yeah. You know, we've made some fun of, or with this, and, and I think that's, uh, that's part of the objective here is to lighten up what would otherwise be, you know, a totally torture, you know, having to read some sort of a formal letter, you know, protect information mm -hmm. and, you know, read this uh, site and this policy and sign off on it. It's a, it lightens up the whole process of, uh, of learning something. And I, I reflect on, a, I think, a point that Adam Rosso had made, our, our chief security officer, that, you know, the, uh, the opportunity to have 
everybody in the corporation be a contributor to your security program is is a really great opportunity. We, we shouldn't discount that. It's not only an opportunity, it's almost necessary it's at this point. So like I said, there, there are only so many Johns, Jims, and Bryans out there, and we need everybody else who's looking at a computer or using a mobile device to think about what the risks are every time they tap or they click on something. Mm -hmm. I think we made this point a couple weeks ago when we were talking about this. This is a layer, the Murray and the rest of the employee base, mm -hmm. is a layer in the security strategy. Now, if we think about yeah. a, a phishing email as an example, you know, the first step, you should have something to block it at, it, at the email gateway. You want to try to get a block there. It's a very difficult thing to do, especially with the URLs where, you know, the URL may even change what it means by the time it gets inside the enterprise. But that's the first stage. Second stage, it gets on the computer. It should get detected by either antivirus, so that's a second layer, or really having good patch management on the computer to make sure that there are at least a minimum number of vulnerabilities associated with that. You can't get rid of the zero days, but you certainly can get rid of the ones that are known. So that's our third layer. Then we're depending on the employees as well to make sure that they're paying attention to what's going on. And last but not least, you know, if it's, uh, if it's a piece of malware, it's going to try to call home. And so we have the enterprise gateway as a means to uh, try to capture or events that, are, that might be taking place within the enterprise as well. Yeah. So it's a, a detection strategy. Five layers of defense here. We should be able to do a pretty good job with that. Yeah. I think people have, the employees have a misconception that they're in a corporate environment and they're automatically protected. But mm -hmm. I think having the campaign to say, no, we need protection from you being the firewall. Right. Yeah. Technology can only do so much. Um, right. You know, antivirus firewalls, they do a, you know, that 95, 99% job mm -hmm. of stopping all the bad stuff. But still, there's things that are going to get through from mm -hmm. time to time. And the humans are really the, you know, last part of that food chain of protecting right. Last part, point devices. The part, there's no there's no substitute for good judgment. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, when we talk about you know, advanced persistent threats, those are designed to get around every single countermeasure that we've discussed, every single technological countermeasure. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down to the last line of, of defense against the most insidious types of attack mm -hmm. are going to be somebody stopping and thinking, yeah. wait a minute, let me think about this before I do something and then making the right action. Yeah. And that's, that's what Murray's there to remind people that's about. It's good business anyway, making sure that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, a little bit of an extended segment, but I think worthwhile. It's, a, I think, a good point. Really appreciate you coming on the program here. And uh, what we're going to do is go into the Internet weather for the uh, past week or so here, give a little bit of idea what uh, types of events have been taking place. And uh, most of these are sort of trend-type things. There aren't any really, re well, actually, there's one uh, event that uh, we're investigating right now. First one here actually is increase in bytes on source port 1900 UDP. This is SSDP, which is actually the uh, simple service delivery protocol. And John, you predicted the, uh, the development of this. I don't remember how long ago that was, but way before well, it, was it around got to in this the, point. The spring or in the summer, at, uh, around June or July, I think, if, I, I would say that you were uh, kind of looking at this protocol as uh, becoming the, sort of the next phase in the uh, basically the just distributed reflection denial service attack right. strategy. So either I'm Nostradamus or the bad guys are watching our show. <laughs> or maybe, <laughs> or maybe you've just been doing your analysis here. In any case, uh, this is in fact activity associated with distributed 
reflection denial service attack activity. It's a weak amplifier. We haven't seen it really uh, thrown really big packets, but it certainly is one that the attackers have been able to find lots of sources and in uh, mass have been able to uh, generate these attacks. And you know, the problem with reflection attacks isn't that they can have a potential amplifying effect. It doesn't appear to be really the big case here, but they also help hide the attackers, that it's very difficult to uh, provide attribution back to the real attack source. Uh, so that's uh, one of the factors. And it turns out, and I think this is more of a coincidence than anything else, uh, or perhaps there's perhaps a sort of a systemic issue, uh, a lot of this attack traffic that we've seen recently on this particular port seems to be coming from China. And uh, that might be that there's some type of a device that happens to be exposing that service to the internet and perhaps shouldn't be. So uh, hopefully they'll be able to get something work to, uh, to, to deal with that. With the theme of this, uh, just the distributed reflection denial service attack activity, we're also seeing some spikes in activity on uh, source port 161 UDP. This is simple network management protocol. We visited this a number of times. Now, just to put it into perspective, that last graph was in the gigabits range, and tens of gigabits, actually, uh, where this is still in the hundreds of megabits range, but we're seeing bigger spikes than we've seen previously on this particular, using this, again, this reflection vector here. This one has a potential for more amplification, but it's a more difficult attack to, uh, to exploit part of because I think you need to you, uh, have the, uh, the, what is it, the, uh, the community the, the name. Community name. Yep. Thank you, John. So, Brian, for something like this, where you see something that's notable and growing but not alarming right now, so is the advice generally for people to just keep an eye on port 161 UDP? They watch traffic coming into their networks and kind of take action as they see it escalate, or what should people be doing? Well, there are two perspectives here, and thanks for asking the question, Dan. One is that certainly you want to make sure that you are not offering these services to the Internet mm. unless you need to. And if you need to, make sure that you're controlling who can get access to it. That is, SNMP really shouldn't be on the internet. SSDP shouldn't really be on the internet. So uh, you want to make sure that your devices have been tested, anything that's internet facing, to uh, make sure that port's not really available on the internet. Because you could become a contributor to the attack. Mm -hmm. And it, as a contributor, it could disrupt your network service as a part of contributing. You know, okay. you denial of service attack as a consequential or a, a collateral damage in effect. So that's one aspect. The other one is that you know you should have a defense, a DDoS attack defense strategy. And part of the strategy in this case is that you will be able to recognize these reflection attacks because it will come on source port 161 or uh, port 1900, as we showed earlier. And then in the next, we'll show that there are some other uh, services that are doing this. So it, the mitigation strategy, so long as you have enough bandwidth available, is not all that difficult. But you have to have one. So the next uh, graph here is actually a composite of uh, the ports and protocols that are the, the greatest contributors in this attack activity right now. Uh, we've showed, shown one similar to this in the past. On the top of the list is still a, a large contributor. It's port 123. That's a network time protocol. We already talked about 1900 UDP. One of the ports I'm including here is zero UDP, which happens to be associated with fragmented packets. So in many of these protocols, what they will do is actually send answers that are bigger than a packet size, and it'll get fragmented into uh, multiple packets. And so that's why it becomes a contributor as well. Port 53, which is DNS, which is a uh, often used in these uh, reflection attack activities. Relatively significant contributor, port 19, which is a uh, character generator. 
charging often referred to. And then uh, last on here is that port 161 UDP. You can't even really see it in the graph. They're just a little itsy bitsy bumps. But the uh, significant one here, as you can see, the dark green is really the big grower here. And that's the SSDP that we had talked about just a little bit ago. Next item here is actually uh, scan probes on port 135 TCP. Now this is associated with the uh, actually the uh, endpoint mapper service. And actually, I think it's been basically phased out. Is that right? Phased uh, out the... You got me on that one. Okay. I'm not sure if it's still in use or not. Maybe Jim knows. Maybe but... Jim, you have an answer? Yeah, it's in newer versions of Windows, it's been replaced using the port 445. But the TCP 135 the for the RPC stuff is still... Uh, still seen a lot on older versions of Windows especially. Right. right, so what this really alludes to or suggests is that they're looking for older versions of Windows, perhaps machines that, well, if they're older versions of Windows, they're probably not patched either. And, uh, or maybe legacy systems or ones that are under uh, very tight configuration control, not necessarily to the benefit of those platforms, uh, but it would be one, you know, like some of these uh, uh, SCAMP systems might be uh, might be associated with that, not SCAMP, but uh, SCADA systems, SCADA, I should say, right. uh, might, might be a, 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 in that kind of predicament. So uh, I feel it, like Samba might also still use this, but I could be wrong on that. Samba uh, is the, yeah, the Unix version of, yeah, of the, uh, the, basically the to do the file sharing network protocol stuff right. with the Microsoft. It's a possibility yeah. it would have some backward compatibility capabilities. Well yeah, I could be wrong, but it's right. been a while since. I've yeah, well, it it does for compatibility reasons, and there's yeah, it's it's still used some for uh, some of the legacy RPC stuff that's not you know tunneled over. You know some other protocol okay so uh, in any case uh there's scanning activity here it's uh bumped up jim you reported on this last week on on threat track as well clearly we've we're seeing less activity now than had been uh, taking place throughout the week now just to put this in perspective this is the same basically the same graph looking back 90 days and we'd reported on this back in uh, may and june when this was taking place as well there was significantly more activity taking place back then. As we did the analysis associated with that, it looked like somebody was actually uh, trying to attack some specific user credentials. Is that right, John? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember. We did look at this, yeah, and it was, was using a particular... Um, God, it looked like something that, I, I, something that we had seen once before a long time ago, mm -hmm. and uh, we were seeing it again uh, using a particular right. user credential to try to see if the machine would answer mm -hmm. or allow Mary, access. What's that? Was that the user Murray? Wasn't no, the user it was not, and it wasn't Reginald. Um, but I don't recall yeah, it what it was. Even Jim Clausing. Clausing <laughs> no. either. But you're right. There was a, an aggressive amount of scanning going on at one point there yeah. from a small number of sources. Uh, I don't. I can't remember the right. details though. Right. Now, not to dwell on that on this port 135 topic here, but just to uh, give a little bit of insight into some of the trending activity. This is the same timeline the past 90 days. And the uh, concerning trend here is we saw that sort of surge in activity a few months ago. And then starting in July, we've seen an upward trend in the number of sources that are doing this probing activity on a relatively consistent basis. So it perhaps suggests that somebody has found something and they're gradually increasing the the the, uh, the bots that they're able to gain from it. Um, I don't have that as actually. I mean, that's a it's a pretty strong indication that's possibly the case here. So, next item here is uh, scan sources on port 5000 UDP. Uh, we don't really have a known application that's associated with this port. There certainly is uh, is 
our applications that are associated with it, but we're not sure what what is actually being looked for or conducted in this particular case. Uh, we're looking at the last 30 days of activity, but this is activity that just started a day or so ago. I, I want to make a clear distinction. You know, we've talked a number of times about the uh, network attached storage, right. the Synology. Synology Disk Station Manager. Right, Disk Station Manager, and they had a uh, administrative port on port 5000 TCP. Correct. Mm -hmm. This is a case where it's on 5000 UDP. Now, we don't know if the, if the attacker was just trying to do, you know, trying to find those devices and missed. Uh, perhaps it's something else that's going on here. Right. I don't know. Um, you know, I took a look at some of those sources. They are embedded devices, so it's kind mm -hmm. of that pool of you like know, Internet, Internet of Things, things devices right? again, uh, engaged in the scanning activity. Um, but I, you know, I'm not quite sure what this traffic is yet, right. uh, and what they're looking for on on the UDP port. So. Yeah. so we didn't want to hold back on reporting it to you, but we don't know exactly what it is yet. It does not look like legitimate activity. It looks like it has some nefarious activity of some, uh, underneath it. I would it. suspect so, so, yes. So uh, partly the reason we wanted to report it to you at this point rather than wait. Uh, so let's take a look at the top 10 most probed ports. And uh, in these ports, uh, some pretty standard things. Some of these are associated with uh, reflection attack activities. Port 53 UDP activity is associated with that. Next item is port 22 TCP. This is that Internet of Things uh, looking for uh, weak passwords, port 445, configure. Port 80 TCP often looking for uh, these uh, web servers that could be possibly exploited. Port 23, same as on port 22, looking for weak passwords. Next one here, we're going to take a look at the trend on this. It's port 3389, that's remote desktop protocol. And then that's followed by uh, 1433, which is uh, Microsoft SQL database, port 443. SSL or HTTPS, and then uh, we already talked about port 135 TCP. Not a whole lot of movement here. We had a few move up, and again, I wanted to show you a little bit of what's going on trend-wise associated with port 3389. Now, this is looking at the last year of activity. We're looking at the number of probes that are taking place on an hourly basis associated with this port, and you can clearly see that there was a significant increase back in, actually, this was in February timeframe. It's pretty stayed pretty stable since then, so uh, no bad trend in, in the upward other than what had taken place back in February. But uh, certainly, uh, uh, clearly, there's interest in this particular port. There are a lot of probes taking place on an hourly basis. And you know, there are some, there are a few worms out there that also scan for this. Mordo is one that's been around for years. It's still out there. If you turn a machine on and listen on the internet, you'll see that there's still Mordo bots out there scanning. Mm -hmm. And they just try like a small list of 30 passwords or something. If, if your RDP server happens to be set up with one of those easy to guess passwords, boom, it gets in, then it you know mm -hmm. copies itself to the machine, and then that becomes part of the, the, the botnet. Yeah. But um, you know, we definitely see a lot of actors looking for about desktop because it gives them full control of that machine, right. and then they can use it for whatever they want. It's like they're sitting there right in front of right. your computer. Yep. And, you know, the, uh, and it's convenient because it's part of the Microsoft installation. Right. So it, uh, it, it makes it easy for people to use it, and unfortunately, sometimes it gets exposed by that. Somebody had given us, it was a third party that did this scan, but somebody had given us the results of a scan, had literally thousands and thousands of computers that they, they didn't do any password guessing. They just walked in, in effect. And uh, the, as a part of that scan information, they provided the screenshots. And I, I was appalled by the number of those that were actually cash registers. Oh. <laughs> so you could actually see what was on the menu at the restaurants and th things like that. I didn't, you know, so in any case. So is that a, situations like that? Is that somebody 
who just installed something out of the box and didn't bother to enable any security? Or is that you know, the device itself is configured to be plugged in and used without any sort of protection and uh, that nobody both, changes it? Okay. It appears to me that uh, there's not good network protection, not good password management, and uh, there's a good possibility not good patch management as well. So it's a collection of things that contribute to the. We talked about layers of security earlier, yeah. and this is a case where there are none. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah absolutely. So that's it for today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can find us, that is, look for threattrack on the ATT Tech Channel. That's att.com slash threattrack. You can find us on YouTube, iTunes, and Twitter as well. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Diane. Glad to be here. Thanks, John, and thanks, Jim, online. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with another episode, and until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.